Hello everybody, Ash here from Here Read This. Now, following on from our last episode on the White Company, today I am joined once again by Andrew Lysett to talk a little more about Arthur Conan Doyle. Andrew has written two books on Conan Doyle, the first a biography, The Man Who Created Sherlock Holmes, which came out in 2007, and just last year he published Conan Doyle's Wide World, which documents the author's extensive travels and adventures. I began by asking Andrew where his fascination with Conan Doyle began. Well, I've always been interested in in Conan Doyle. Um, you know, he's a great story writer, and I've been into them, you know, from a, an early age. But mm. I first started thinking about Conan Doyle as a subject for a biography. Gosh, um, I'd written a biography of, of Ian Fleming, and mm. that came out in 1995. And subsequent to that... Um, I was looking around for another subject. I was looking at both Kipling and Conan Doyle for various reasons uh, as as subjects. I got involved in following up Kipling. I went to the United States to do some research on on Kipling because he had um, he'd married an American woman and gone to live in Vermont. Mm. Uh, and I'd I'd been to Kipling's house in Vermont. And I'd learned there the story about how Conan Doyle had visited Kipling in Vermont in 1894. And these two English writers had sort of spent Thanksgiving together. And not only that, but um, Conan Doyle was on a, on a tour of the United States at the time, sort of cashing in on his fame as the writer of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Kipling was living there as well as sort of celebrating Thanksgiving. And I mean, Conan Doyle was only there a day or so. They played a game of golf on the the sort of rolling hills around uh, Kipling's house, um, just outside Brattleboro in Vermont. And I was intrigued by this, that these two authors should get together and and play a game of golf. And, you know, I, I sort of made my mind up that after Kipling, which I was then committed to, I would write about Conan Doyle. Wrote at that time to the Conan Doyle estate and sort of started the ball rolling about possibly writing. And I got the impression that it it wasn't quite the right time. Mm. But luckily, I suppose you could say, um, I'd done my Kipling book and then I'd done a book on Dylan Thomas, which came Mm. out in uh, 2003 and then I noticed um, that there was this sale at Christie's the following year of the complete archive of the the Conan Doyle family basically well Conan Doyle in particular and, and his his family as well uh, and this included a lot of material about not just Conan Doyle personally, but the way that he wrote. They had diaries about his time in South Sea, his involvement with spiritualism, etc., which was fascinating material. And I approached the estate again at that time and was delighted that, you know, they were responsive to my request. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't an official biography or anything like that, but Mm. um, they were basically encouraging and, uh, you know, so then I was able to to continue on my my research into Conan Doyle, and you know that took me to to different places. You know, there are Conan Doyle archives at 
in different parts of the world, took me to Switzerland, for example, mm. inevitably to the United States, where a lot of material um, was acquired by collectors, basically, in, in mm. the United States. And I'm talking about Conan Doyle material there. Does having written a, a biography of Kipling and Conan Doyle mean you've written that particular game of golf from two different perspectives? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think um, I, I kind of knew about the game of golf when I was mm. writing about Kipling, but it wasn't until I wrote about Conan Doyle that I actually came across um, the card. Yeah. The card with the, you know, how much they scored at each oh, hole. Oh, really? Oh, right. Um, and uh, so I was able to kind of add to, add to that. And Conan Doyle was actually visiting America with his, his brother, Innes, and um, so they traveled together around America. So they played this game against Kipling and his brother-in-law, who was, you know, said he was married to an American. So Kipling and his brother-in-law, B.T. Ballastier against uh, Conan Doyle and his brother, Innes. And who won? It was halved. Oh, okay. <laughs> I prayed. Oh. Was, there, was no, there was no victor. I don't know, you know, I, I saw the the final, the contemporary document. So, yeah. you know, so that that was the truth. It must be a strange feeling when moments like that brush up against each other between your biographies, when you're writing about con contemporary lives and they, they interlink like that. And... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, having written about Kipling, you know, that gave me, you know, greater insight into the world, the world of, you know, kind of English and Scottish letters in um you know, the 1890s, around that time, and and what was going on, you know, the mm. the kind of growth of the sense of imperialism. Now, uh, Kipling was obviously a, a very imperialistic writer and indeed ideologue. Conan Doyle was a bit more subtle. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, you know, he was a great believer in the British Empire, mm. but he, in the way that perhaps only somebody who was born into an Irish family lived in Scotland and then kind of spent most of his time in England could you know that mm. he he was a great believer in British values I think he he saw them from a historical perspective and that's why you know he believed in um, he was so interested in medieval history because he saw a kind of development of English history that um, that he was he was interested in. He was also very interested in American history and indeed the dedication to his book, The, the White Company, which includes a sort of curious, you might say, quite dramatic kind of bit of prophecy about the future of the British Empire. But it has a foreword which says in Conan Doyle's words, and this is at the, the start of The White Company, to the hope of the future, the reunion of the English-speaking races, this little chronicle of our common ancestry is described. Uh, and that was a theme throughout Conan Doyle's career, actually, mm. that, you know, he was a great believer in coming together of the, the, um, the British and the American peoples. Uh, Kipling was a little bit more equivocal about that. I mean, he went to live in the United States, but... And he was married to an American, that uh, he saw sort of differences between Britain and the United States that mm. he thought were kind of not exactly irreconcilable, but, um, you know, which which he saw him to see the future of 
the world somewhat differently. Yeah. Uh, British British history somewhat differently from the American history. I'm glad you bring that inscription up because it is so curious and it's so kind of grand a way to open a, a historical novel. It's curious in a way because, I mean, Americans don't come into it, but, yeah. you know, it was very much, uh, it was very much um, intrinsic to Conan Doyle's sort of view of the world that, mm. you know, would now be considered, I don't think he was racist, but, you know, the, the way that he had that sort of belief in Anglo-American values and stuff like that, you know, I mean, he, he really did believe that this was something that was good for the world, and as mm. did Kipling. And I suppose Conan Doyle did go, I mean, he was, he was willing to, to join up to fight in the Boer War. Mm. By then, he was, he was 40, and he was considered too old to, to fight. But, you know, mm. he was that kind of guy. And that's one of the, the, the kind of interesting things about Conan Doyle. I mean, he was a man of great enthusiasms. Well, I was going to ask like, how, how he compared. I mean, I can't imagine writing a biography of someone who who's, has pretty local interests and leads a pretty parochial life. But it, it, it strikes me thinking of attempting a, or beginning a biography on Conan Doyle that, that there's almost tens and tens of lives to go at. Um, <laughs> how, how, does, how does sort of just the workload compare to yeah. uh, the other subjects you've, you've written about? There's a lot of work, and, but you don't really think about that when you, when you start out. You know, you kind of, you know, you want to find out about this person. And I suppose I didn't really know that much about Conan Doyle as a kind of character when mm. I started out writing about him and you know I think that's I mean I like to say whether it's actually true or not I don't know but you know I find you know the fact that I was involved in a voyage of sort of personal discovery of uh, this character Conan Doyle and you know his whole world brings a certain kind of excitement to the writing etc etc which I mean I hope that that's what comes across because basically I was excited about what I was finding out and the, mm. the what I find out about the extent of of Conan Doyle's writing and personality I mean you know he wasn't you know he started out as a as a scientist a doctor and he kind of he became so much more you know he mm. became a world famous writer but he also was a great traveller and he was also someone who thought quite deeply about, about the world and about people's position in it. So mm. I mentioned that he'd been brought up a Roman Catholic, that he'd be sort of left that on one side. As a scientist, he became interested in the phenomenon of spiritualism. This was something that perhaps it seems a bit incredible now, but Scientists in the 1880s, start of the 1880s, when Conan Doyle first started getting interested in that area, you know, well-known physicists at Cambridge University and that sort of thing, wanted to bring their scientific know-how to what was going on in the developing uh, world of the paranormal, because mm. with the, you could put it sort of somewhat simplistically, the, the sort of end of official religion with the the publication of the origin of species and you know darwinism becomes sort of part of the people's thinking in i mean i think that was published in 1859 so you know that was very much contemporary with uh, conan doyle's life uh he studied as a scientist in in edinburgh and he 
participated in this enthusiasm for finding out about the sort of possible scientific things that were going on with the kind of great outpouring of paranormal activity that came in the the, the mid to late 19th century, where you get sort of levitations and seances, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Conan Doyle was initially interested in that as a, as a scientist. And, you know, he he kind of got involved while he was in Portsmouth in, in seances. But, you know, he, he he kind of approached it as a scientist and he wanted to to know what was going on scientifically when, you know, you, you got poltergeists and that sort of thing. Mm. And he sort of maintained his sort of grounding as a sort of objective scientist until the beginning of the First World War, when he had recently got married to his second wife. His first wife had died and he'd married this second wife, uh, Jean. She was perhaps more sympathetic to spiritualism. And the upshot of it was that when various of both Conan Doyle and his wife Jean's family um, were killed in the First World War. They started getting more um, involved in spiritualism. Mm -hmm. One of Jean, Jean Conan Doyle, formerly Jean Leckie's great friends was a sort of medium and they had her over to uh, stay with them. By that time, Conan Doyle had moved to the place where he had his last house at um, called Windlesham uh, in Crowborough mm. in Sussex. So there he got involved quite dramatically in spiritualism, of which there was a great sort of growth in the those years of the, of the First World War when people were trying to get in with their get in touch with the spirits of their loved ones who had yeah. been taken from them in battles on the the Western Front, mm. and there'd been no opportunity to kind of mourn them. And did that coincide with a rise of clairvoyance and people claiming to contact your relatives and that kind of thing? That's right, yeah. Uh, and by that time, and I suppose what I was working around to, was that Conan Doyle had left behind his scientific objectivity about, you know, trying to discover the the scientific basis for the paranormal, for extrasensory perception, et cetera, et cetera. He'd become a believer in spiritualism. He'd become a believer that you could, you could make contact with the spirit of the departed. And, you know, he made, I was going to say made a living, but that's not quite right. But, you know, it became the central part of his life mm. for the last sort of 15 years of his life. Um, he, he, he went on, he gave very well received, very, I mean, very massively frequented, massively received um, lectures, lecture tours. He went to the United States, he went to Australia, he went to South Africa, he went to Scandinavia. He was, um, became a sort of official kind of ambassador for international spiritualism, if you like. Uh, I, was, I was going to ask you about what, what appears to be the big paradox of his life, the, the rational student doctor from Edinburgh who's writes Sherlock Holmes and the man you've just described in the last 15 years of his life but actually the paradox is quite understandable when you take into account the chain of events the intellectual interest then the grief 
the subjectivity that comes in later. Well, 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 well observed. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Um, you, you've you've touched on it already, but how, how did your perceptions of of Conan Doyle change as you uh, wrote both um, the books you have on him? Was there anything that you felt you uh, you changed your mind completely on? Well, I got to sort of know and love him more you know i mean i mm. i could see his his faults i mean he could be a bit pompous and so but the in there was a sort of great spirit about him a great you know his enthusiasm for the for history for example you know yeah. it was typical of, of the man that you know he threw himself into everything that he did you know he threw himself into uh sport for example one of the mm. things that uh, about him that um i kind of identified with was um, his love of cricket. Now, I'm, I'm a great cricket enthusiast and uh, Conan Doyle played cricket. He loved cricket. You know, he he wrote poet poem about it. I mean, really? poetry about it. I mean, one of his, and he wrote a, th- three books of poetry, actually, which, I mean, they're small books, but they, they can sort of condensed into one. Mm. And one of his, his poems, which is worth checking out if you have an opportunity, was about the time that he, as a bowler in cricket, dismissed W.G. Grace. And Conan Doyle writes a sort of great enthusiastic poem about, about this and, you know, his great joy at, you know, having get, got out the, the great master, W.G. Grace. Uh, and that sort of enthusiasm, and he was tried so many things. And, you know, he was, you know, he was a war correspondent. He wrote about going up the Nile, um, he wrote a novel called, in the late 1890s, not, he wouldn't exactly call it a historical novel, it was more a sort of contemporary novel of, called The Tragedy, Tragedy of the Carrasco. Mm. And it's, it's about a group of tourists who are kidnapped by some followers of the Mahdi. So he, Conan Doyle, is following as a journalist the British invasion of Sudan, you know, trying mm. to, 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 to quash the Mahdi's revolt. Mm. And um, Conan Doyle writes a novel about a, a group of tourists. Seems a bit unlikely, there's a war going on, but there was a group of tourists, they're captured by followers of the Mahdi and, and, and held. Now, mm. it's, it's an interesting novel because it's sort of, it's one of the first novels that I know about the West coming up against what you might call militant Islam. Mm. And it's it's very sympathetically done. You know, the, the, these Conan Doyle has a great rapport with these people of the desert and mm. the people who are kidnapped are sort of escorted across the desert and stuff. But, you know, they begin to learn the kind of rhythms of the desert, which are beautifully evoked in this particular novel, which, you know, is... Mm. is it's not very well known, let's be honest. No, I haven't heard. I, what was the name of it again? I don't think I've... It's called The Tragedy of the Carrasco. Tragedy of the Carrasco. Excellent. I'll look that up. Well, uh, I, I've actually um, exhausted my questions. I, I okay. want to ask you where to tell uh, everyone listening where to get your books. And I also, um, I usually uh, wrap things up, sorry to put you on the spot, by asking a guest, since we are a book podcast to um, uh, recommend something you, either you've read recently, it can be something connected to today's conversation conversation, or, or anything else that just happens to come to mind. <laughs> well, dealing with that, where to buy my books, I, I'm afraid I, you know, your local book, your, your local book 
seller, yep. you know, needs support in this particular at this moment. So yeah. if you can manage that, do. But, you know, there are other uh, ways that one can purchase books these days. And, you know, you don't have to go to Amazon. There are other mm. people that you can go to online. Um, and of course, there is Amazon. Um, <laughs> you know, one can't <laughs> can't get away from that. No. So, what was what's the, oh yes, what what book might I might I recommend? You know, I've done quite a bit of reading during lockdown, and you know, I've been reading thrillers. So, for for sort of relaxation, you know, I've read the latest Le Carre. I've read a couple of Le Carres. Mm. I read a a book I recommend by a novelist called Charles Cumming, who writes espionage novels called box 88 mm. and i've read quite a few books of non-fiction now i just finished last week i think it was a mammoth book uh which you know whether i'd recommend it to anybody to to read it's something like 800 pages only the foolhardy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a biography of sir edward gray who was foreign minister in the great sort of liberal period in the um, sort of Edwardian age, mm. 18, 1900s, up to the First World War. Um, and of course, you know, he was the foreign secretary at the start of the of um, the First World War. And this book, it's, it's long, it's a sort of, you know, goes into the diplomacy be behind the kind of build up to the First World War. Mm. It's It's never... You know too much you know it's it's done very well mm. and um it gives a great sort of background to what was going on in the world at a time when conan doyle was was writing perhaps his later works mm. i mean it doesn't really this book i'm talking about which is the biography of sobered gray doesn't really go back to the 1880s so you know a lot of conan doyle's story Kind of emanates from the 1880s when he was in Portsmouth. You know, he was trying, struggling to get a sort of two-track career going, him as a doctor and him as a writer. And he's trying different things, you know, he's trying all these kind of various genre things. And eventually he comes across a genre type of literature that that works for him, which is detective stories. But he's still, you know, he sees his calling as something more than just writing stories if you like mm. to put it you know he's he's he sees himself as a great great writer of literature basically and yeah. um you know with the white company i mean it, it is a remarkable novel and uh, you know it 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 deserves um a wider audience if you like uh, yeah. it it got slightly overshadowed if you like to say that um yeah i will say mm. that uh, it got slightly overshadowed by the whole Charlotte Holmes thing, mm. and as did Conan Doyle's career as a writer of you know other other works of literature. But you know it it's a it's a good it's an exciting work of uh, historical fiction, and I would recommend it to anybody who you know, who really who's interested. Yeah. That's all for today, I'm afraid. A huge thank you to my special guest, Andrew Lysett. You will find links to his books in the episode description box below. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, happy reading.